Today on Public Research with Daniel Schwartz, Episode 11. Stephen Monicelli of the Texas Observer and Protean Magazine joins to discuss the state of Texas and the growing ties between its far-right billionaires and grassroots fascist activists. If you read about the far-right, any of the history books, Texas is probably the most important state. It comes up again and again. My guest today is one of the most important journalists, I think, in the U.S. It's easy to write about extremism and whatnot, living in L.A. or Chicago or New York. But to live in Texas and to be on the ground in, I think, the most important state as far as the American right, that takes balls. And my guest today, Stephen Monticelli, has balls, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> uh, that's, that's a wonderful intro. I've never had someone um, say that about my work, but I will I will take it, Daniel. Thank you. Well, I, I've I've seen it. You the, you go out to the parks, you cover the protests. I mean, I'm from a blue state. I'm from Chicago. You know, when when you go to red states and and you do, I fly drones in red states all the time. And whenever I realize, oh, that guy probably has a gun in his car, <laughs> makes you think twice. You know, but um, yep. So. Is Texas still the most important right-wing state, or or is it Florida? That's an interesting question. I, I, I'd say those are the two that are probably vying for that title. And up until recently, I would probably tell you that it's Texas. But now that Donald Trump considers you know Florida his sort of home base with Mar-a-Lago, and that, um, you know, one of the other a- attempted presidential nominees who is very unlikely to succeed, um, Ron DeSantis, is also in Florida. Um, you know, I, I think that adds a little bit of weight towards them. Um, but, you know, I'd say it's neck and neck. Stephen understands as well as anybody what I am uh, very concerned about. And I'm sort of been shouting from the rooftops about which is the Groypers, how radical the Gen Z right a lot of it is. You get that. Uh, my fear has always been, what if we get some billionaires that come around and they start funding basically what I consider a modern day Nazi movement? We had something really scary happen this year and it didn't get nearly enough coverage which is, I just call him a Nazi. Nick Fuentes, you know, he says he loves Hitler. For me, that's, you're a Nazi. He had a seven-hour meeting in Texas in a, I don't know, pack. What, what, what would you call that place? So, uh, Pale Horse Strategies. Okay. A consulting firm okay, consulting. that uh, also is run by the, former head of one of the most significant conservative, or I would call ultra conservative packs in Texas, defend Texas Liberty. So he had multiple hats. Yeah. This Nazi leader in America, Nick Fuentes, he's a new form of Nazi. He had a seven hour meeting at a 
strategist, con consulting, whatever you want to call it, company, which is funded by multiple legit billionaires from Texas. And what we're seeing now in Texas should be a nightmare for people, which is we have billionaires funding Nazis, giving jobs to Nazis, having seven hour meetings. Now, <laughs> I don't know about other people, but the only seven hour meetings that I would do is if I'm devising a strategy, I'm writing a contract, I'm doing negotiation. This was not a lunch meeting. And this should be national news, but it isn't. And instead, it's interesting right now, there's all this focus on so-called left-wing anti-Semitism. You know, Elon Omar tweets all about the Benjamins. It's a national story. But Paul Gosard, uh, a congressman from Arizona, it's revealed that his staffers are basically pledged members of a Nazi cult. And it's barely national news. I mean, it's not even national news. What, first of all, what, how is this possible that, that this anti-Semitism among the GOP, it doesn't go national the way that Tlaib and all these other little stories go national? It's a good question. I wish I could say I had a firm, detailed understanding of all of the mechanisms that result in this imbalance in coverage. Um, but I think one of the ways to understand it, or at least a framework for looking at the issue, is understanding that allegations of anti-Semitism have become politicized in a way that makes it such that anti-Semitism and something like anti-Zionism or criticism of the actions of the Israeli government, or I should be more even specific, the actions of the leading coalition led by Benjamin Netanyahu and Likud, um, it, you know, those things, equating those things as the same, um, which lends itself to conservative politics. Uh, in particular, we have to understand that in places like Texas, uh, some of these billionaires and politicians are the type of Christians that believe that Israel must exist in order to effectively trigger the end times uh, as it is portrayed in some readings of the Bible. And, and so effectively what you've got here is, is this conflation of anti-Semitism um, with left-wing politics as opposed to anti-Semitism being its own issue that can be trans-ideological. It can span the spectra. Um, and, and so we're in this situation where now the House uh, – in Congress has passed a resolution equating anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, um, which in other words is, you know, a body primarily composed of Christians telling Jews who are critical of Israel that they're anti-Semitic. 
mean, it's um, just yeah, it's just it's wild. It's ridiculous. I mean, Ben Lorber is Jewish. He's one of the best journalists on the far right. He's an anti-Zionist. Peter Beinart, Jewish. He's anti-Zionist. I mean, there's nobody serious that would look those two people in the face and say they're anti-Semites. You know? It's it is absurd. And and they have also, I think Ben in particular is a great voice for helping people understand that there can be anti-Semitism among what people may broadly describe as the left. Um, but that a lot of what people have tried to label as anti-Semitism is not. And it, it does a disservice to those who are seeking to snuff out um, rank anti-Semitism, no matter where it comes from in terms of the ideological spectrum. Um so it 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 really undercuts our ability to have nuanced and factual conversations about the issue. Um because you know, if we even are to acknowledge that anti-Semitism can be both a left and right wing issue, well then it would require us to ask questions and dig into details like are they qualitatively the same or are they qualitatively different? Are they quantitatively the same or are they quantitatively different? Um, and and those conversations, I, I think, would uh, you know really highlight that the most dangerous and blatant anti-Semitism comes from the far right. Uh, and that it is often encouraged by or incited through rhetoric that is increasingly being mainstreamed such as the white replacement theory so let's get into this what to me is this nightmare situation of billionaires hooking up with nazis in texas stephen monticelli is one of the experts in the world i think it's fair to say on the big money donors of texas I mean, you would acknowledge that, right, Stephen? I have done my research, although there are um, a number of people, such as Chris Tackett, uh, who have been looking into this as well for quite some time. Um, but yes, I've I've recently done uh, a number of pieces about the role of uh, large donors it, in Texas politics. There's maybe ten people on Earth that know more about Texas donors uh than steven but he's one of the experts so you've been covering this in depth i mean you've been sued i don't know if he's not a billionaire right monty bennett uh by some accounts he is okay. i believe uh depends on you know the the value of his businesses yeah. oh, how and his holdings yeah. so it's it's a little obscure but you could consider him to be you know at the very least uh a multi-millionaire so do you want to sort of talk about how you started looking into these big money forces in Texas? Yeah, sure. Um, so some people look at big money uh, strictly through things like campaign donations. Uh, that's not necessarily how I started um, writing articles about the influence of people like Monty Bennett. My first article I ever wrote concerning him was about um, how he 
have been announced as the new publisher of a website in Dallas that was recently launched uh, called the Dallas Express, uh, which that name previously had been used by a long-running black newspaper uh, that went defunct many decades ago. And uh, that article was about how um, not only had he uh, been announced as the publisher, but that previous reporting in D Magazine had indicated that the website was uh, affiliated with this network of what I would call bogus partisan websites that masquerade as local news, um, but in reality have uh, much more of a political agenda in mind. And uh, that network, I later reported uh, after it was first reported by the Columbia Journalism Review, um, that network is controlled by Brian Timpone. And among the companies in that network is one called Pipeline. And uh, one of the members of the board of that company is none other than Tim Dunn. And Tim Dunn is one of the funders of Defend Texas Liberty, the organization we were speaking about previously, where uh, the former head of it met with Nick Fuentes for a very long time. And so you can gather then that, um, you know, there's this sort of interesting set of connections uh, between, you know, these billionaires like Monty Bennett and Tim Dunn, uh, organizations like Metric Media, the Republicans they donate to, and, um, you know, questions around who funds a number of uh, what I've called astroturf groups in the Dallas area. Um, that was another reason I ended up, you know, writing about Monty Bennett, because it is a fact that his website, the Dallas Express, has developed a bit of a knack for continuously, repeatedly, and disproportionately uh, citing these astroturf groups as credible sources in their reporting. So, you know, those were those were some of the things that led me to become more interested in how much money uh, people like that are spending and how they're spending it. And then uh, another article I co-wrote with uh, a contributor at the Texas Observer, Kit O'Connell, was about how Monty Bennett had personally pressured a children's hospital uh, that he had donated unknown sums to. He was pressuring them to shut down a gender clinic. And we got these emails um, that he had sent to the hospital. Um, and those emails had ended up actually being forwarded by one of his lieutenants at his company to this organization called um, the American College of Pediatricians. Uh, which has been designated a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, and they also have been very active in trying to shut down gender-affirming care for LGBTQ people. So you know, part of that story was how Mr. Bennett had donated well over, you know, it was like over a hundred thousand dollars to a oh wait, no, geez, way more than that. Nearly like, you know, 
$800,000 over the past 13 years to Republican politicians who have in turn taken a hardline stance against gender affirming care. Um, so, you know, most recently, I also reported how um, he had spent tens of thousands of dollars to back a number of ultra conservative school board candidates across Texas, which was a part of a story that detailed how over the past two and a half years or so, hundreds of thousands of dollars, actually, I think over a million dollars has been spent uh, from a variety of sources, but a lot of it coming from billionaires like Bennett, Harlan Crow, uh, another name, Richard Weekly, and then another name, Saunders is his last name, Fred Saunders. Uh, they had donated to these PACs that... Um, then spent lots of money backing these ultra conservative school board candidates across Texas and in the districts where these conservative candidates have won and secured a majority. There's been um, pretty consistently a hard turn towards uh, policies that you know, basically I would say roll back protections for LGBTQ students in particular trans students as well as um, restrict access or even outright ban um, books often that relate to the LGBTQ experience. So, you know, there's, you know, a lot more that I haven't reported on that is also out there um, that would help illustrate the impact that these wealthy individuals can have uh, on our politics in Texas, as well as nationally, um, because Mr. Bennett has also been a large Trump donor, as um, have some of these other donors. So, you know, it it is just a little bit of a sliver of the things that you can learn about um, if you dig into the activities of these people. But I, I think it um, helps illustrate, you know, the sorts of things that they do and uh, the kind of influence they can wield. Of the 73 billionaires in Texas, how many can you name off the top of your head? Oh, probably not enough. Um, I mean, you don't have I to think, do it now. I think I named a few of them, and then there's like what Mark Cuban too. Um, he's probably the most well-known one. Now, what's he doing? <laughs> he uh, recently had an interesting deal where the widow of um, Sheldon Adelson, Sheldon Adelson. Uh, bought a large interest in the Mavericks and Adelson. If you don't know who that is big, I'm assuming you do, but yes. if any of your listeners don't, you know, big time casino guy who had spent a lot of money lobbying to legalize gambling in casinos in Texas. Um, and now that Adelson has, you know, his, his widow rather has um, spent money on the Mavericks. It's kind of interesting to see if, you know, Cuban may end up supporting uh, gambling reform or legalization, I should say, in Texas more stridently. I don't really know what he's going to do, but he now has a lot of money to do something. Is he running? No idea. I haven't heard any indication of that. Um, but I also frankly doubt that the gambling lobby uh, will succeed in legalizing it, um, if only because the lobbyists that they pay to do this work, have every incentive to drag this thing out and have it always be like one vote away, right, two votes right. away. 
Right. Because as long as the casino money spigots are flowing, the lobbyists are keen to keep that business going. So who are the worst Texas billionaires? It's Tim Dunn, the Wilkes. The Wilkes are also up there. Um, there's a few that are lesser known that also wield influence like Saunders, Richard Weekly. Uh, they've been spending a lot of money. Richard Weekly really, I think, is probably the, the least scrutinized relative to the amount of money and influence um, that he has. Uh, he is the chairman and CEO of Texans for Lawsuit Reform, which is a pretty large conservative organization um, that originally spun itself up to push for tort reform. Um, but, you know, they've done other stuff as well. They've donated a lot of money to a lot of candidates. He's also a board member of Texans for Education Reform, which is a pro-school privatization uh, organization. And he's based in Houston. Uh, and he, he operates in similar circles um, as people like Tim Dunn and Ferris Wilkes, uh, who they are a bit more uh, open and strident about their Christian beliefs playing a significant role in their worldview. Someone who also a lot of people don't know about un unless you read a little bit about the PPP loan scandal stuff is someone you've already mentioned, Monty Bennett. I don't think he spends quite as much money uh, as maybe Tim Dunn or Ferris Wilkes does, but um, he spends a lot. Um, and I would say those are the ones that really like, you know, come to mind. Uh, but there's one that I have at the tip of my tongue. Harlan who... Crow. Oh yeah, of course. He's I mean, and then there's Harlan Crow. Yeah. And then, and then there's Harlan Crow. Right. Um, and he plays, I think more at a national level, but he right, still is right. quite involved at the local level and the state level. And yeah, the whole Crow family is interesting because Harlan's, only one of them trammel crow is another right, guy right he's he's got some interesting stuff going on and then there's and another then, brother uh, that they talked about on chapo i think he was like living with the this uh escort or something <laughs> or was that trammel i'm not sure i i, I think that may have been trammel but i can't say i'm a hundred percent on that um don't want to get sued but you can you can look these guys up and and pull up uh their oh yeah um, yeah oh their everything is alleged it's all alleged with any of the billionaires yeah right and and then uh a couple others like people have maybe heard of T Boone Pickens um, is he still he, alive he was really influential for some time he is no longer alive uh but um people that he's worked with are like Albert Huddleston, uh, another oil guy. Uh, Albert Huddleston donated quite a bit to the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth thing back in the day, um, if you remember that. And the guy who yeah. led that is now like the head of the Trump campaign. I, I, maybe you're right about that. I actually forget yeah. who led that. Chris, Chris uh, La Savita. Mm -hmm. And then there's the Hunt family. You mentioned them earlier. There's a long history of the Hunt family and their interesting politics. H.L. Hunt funded 
radio outlets. That's the guy. Like, that's the guy who, who was funding Eustace Mullins. Yeah. Yep. So he had this publication called Lifeline, which um, I actually mentioned in the article that uh, Monty Bennett sued me about because I, I kind of made a comparison by saying this isn't the first time that we've had a, you know, right-wing billionaire from Texas funding, you know, their own sort of media organ uh, that is explicitly right-wing. And and I picked him because, you know, they have roots in Dallas, but there is also uh, this organization called Texas Scorecard, uh, which is a pretty terrible right-wing rag. And that was initially a part of Empower Texans, which was primarily funded by people like Tim Dunn. Um, so we have quite a few active people that, you know, you may have heard of some of them, you may have heard of none of them. Um, and they're spending hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars uh, every few years to really steer Texas in the direction they want to see it go. Uh, and of the people you mentioned, is it mostly, it's mostly oil and gas? Well, a lot of it's oil. If it's not oil, then it tends to be either like real estate or something niche like medical technology. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think the crows are real estate. I, right, Bennett, I think, is real estate. Yep, he's a real estate, primarily like a hotelier, but Hunt is oil. Uh, Al Huddleston is oil. Uh, Ferris Wilkes is oil, Tim Dunn, you know, all, all of those guys. Yeah. I mean, and then the crows are, crows are real estate as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Texas is a fascinating state. Is there such a thing as like a Texas character that's distinctive? Yeah. I mean, I think Texas looms large in the minds of not only Americans, but in particular Europeans. Uh, internationally, if you tell people you're from Texas, they have these images and tropes in their mind, which have their roots in reality, uh, but are also antiquated, stereotypical, and not really what you could say as like normal or average or contemporary. Do you ride a horse? Right, right. There are people who do that. There are people who do that, but... Most people don't. Texas has a lot of diversity and a lot of different cultures. Um, if you go to San Antonio, you'll experience one flavor of Texas culture. If you go to El Paso, you'll experience another. If you go to Dallas, it depends on what part of Dallas you go to. If you go to Houston, same story. It 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 is a place that can simultaneously be very backward and very cosmopolitan. And I would say it's extremely gerrymandered. Uh, and one of the worst states when it comes to things like voting access um, and the efforts that the state puts into educating people about what they're voting on. You know, for example, when I lived in California, I'd always get these voter guides in the mail that were put together by the local municipality or the state. And it wasn't telling you how to vote. It was just compiling a standardized set of information from various candidates or, you know, providing descriptions of what ballot issues were about. And we don't do that sort of stuff here. 
generally speaking. So Texas, it, it, it has the sort of myth around it of it being this place where cowboys are, you know, the norm and, you know, we're all carrying guns and we all have big ranches or, uh, you know, it's very racist or any of those sorts of things. Um, and while all of those things may be true in some sense, they're not the truth. Right. If that right. makes sense. Right. Exactly. But to generalize, and of course, this is not a, this is not a statement about all people. My understanding is that the most sort of um, bigoted or extreme area of Texas is the eastern part that's uh, like near the Louisiana border. I mean, obviously, this is a total generalization, but like Texarkana. Uh, um, Texarkana, I don't know about Texarkana as much as more of like it's it's like far east Texas near Tyler. Uh and historically, that has had to do with places where there have been large Ku Klux Klan memberships. Yeah, uh, yeah. Dallas was a big place for the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s, but there was more or less an organized effort on behalf of the, um, how would I say this? Uh, what's good for business is good for Dallas conservatives who you know, tried to get, they basically tried to kick the Klan out of public life because it was giving Dallas a bad name. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean that we got rid of all the racism or segregation, but it pushed the sort of outright bigotry that the Klan represents to the fringes. Um, And East Texas has, I think, more of a history of this, although I think some of that's changing I wrote an article for the Dallas Observer in 2021 about um, the city of Longview and how neo-Nazis had planned a gathering there, but the community there was not happy about it. Yeah. And Longview is, uh, where is it exactly? I'm pulling it up on the map. It's, it's solidly east of Dallas. It's closer to Shreveport than it is to dallas um and so yeah that whole sort of area tyler palestine longview uh closer to louisiana has um you know historically been associated with some of that but i I do think that there's been change over time right where did uh the the term for dallas city of hate do you know what the origin was of that if I'm not mistaken, the origin of that is more or less the Kennedy assassination. It's the Kennedy. Okay. Yeah. And part of the reason that was sort of stuck on Dallas is the way that Kennedy was welcomed into right. Dallas. Right, right, right. Um, there was a, a flyer distributed by the man a man named edwin a walker i believe and yeah walker was affiliated with the john birch society the general guy yeah oh Um, okay so the 
poster flyer it it said wanted for treason and it had his face jfk's face and a bunch of you know reasons for this um some of them being that he was lax on communism and appointing anti-christians to federal office which seem like things you would hear people say today and yeah about five thousand copies of that poster or flyer whatever you want to call it were distributed and so that kind of set the the tone for um kennedy's arrival and and then the subsequent assassination um you know it, it kind of put that flyer under suspicion for a while right I'm, I'm just thinking about it in in a way like do you think maybe texas represents like the capital of the south you know it's like the south for a lot of its history was a lot poorer than the north and then you get with the oil boom and suddenly mm. it's like southern this is southern money like this is a real deal economic powerhouse yeah yeah um i i think there's really something to that uh i spoke with an anthropologist who works at a university in dallas not that long ago and i think the way they put it um there's also some truth to it and what they said was in their mind uh texas is the center of american politics and if that's true then and dallas is the center of texas politics then dallas is the epicenter of american politics it's it's certainly a heuristic and and sort of a uh I think maybe an overstatement. However, I do think a lot of things end up coming back to the North Texas area. I mean, a, a large number of January 6th participants were from the Dallas region. We've got a lot of these billionaires who continue to make national news um, with roots to Dallas, roots in Dallas or connections to Dallas, I should say. And uh, Trump always makes big stops here. First Baptist Church which is a sort of emblematic of hard right evangelical Christianity is, you know, has hosted Trump a couple different times, I believe. Um, so I think, yeah, in order to understand American politics at the very least, you need to understand Texas politics. I love learning about Texas. Is it true that the three metros of Austin, Houston and Dallas that I think somebody was saying that if they keep growing, that they're basically their exurbs are going to touch, and then like they'll be able to like form like one a giant me- thing, a mega thing. I mean that, God forbid. Uh, but I can definitely say that Dallas Fort Worth, the broader region, is uh, sort of like one thing at this point in time. They, that's where they they came up with the word the Metroplex to describe it which i think is a kind of a dumb word but nevertheless the dallas fort worth statistical region like the metro region as it's measured in the census is on track to being larger than the chicago area metro region in about 10 years a sore point i I, i'm very wounded Uh, there's a lot of envy i have to say as a chicagoan i have a lot of uh 
Yeah, it's true. I, I resent Texas overtaking us. But I, I mean, the growth of Texas is sort of amazing. One day I just looked on Google Maps and I just explored Dallas and I was just stunned at how large it is. What has the growth been like in your lifetime? Pretty significant. You know, areas that used to be undeveloped are now fully developed exurbs. Dallas has built out quite significantly since the first time I ever visited Dallas. I mean, the growth has been consistent and I don't want to say increasing because I'm not looking at the stats, but it's it's remarkable. Uh, so I want to talk about some notable Texans. Some, some people might not know Wes Anderson is a Texan. Is he from Houston or Dallas? It's a good question. I'm supposed to know this. Wait, yeah. Um, he's Houston. He's okay. a Houston guy. And and so he's from the wealthy uh, neighborhood in Houston. He went to St. John's, which is a pretty, okay. right. yeah, it's like right. a pretty uppity, I don't want to say uppity, but it's an expensive yeah. private Is that school. where Richard Spencer went? No, he went to St. Mark's, which is in Dallas. Uh -huh. That is where Luke Wilson and Owen Wilson went, I'm pretty sure. Okay. And, and is, is St. Mark's, is that in Highland Park? Yes. Okay. Yes, it is. That is the, you know, really wealthiest of the wealthy place in Texas. And it's where Harlan Crow lives. Uh and and uh what is the thing that Crow owns? Uh Loveland. What is it called? Loveland? The old Loveland. Oh, uh, uh Old Parkland. Pa old Parkland. Yeah, which is in Highland Park. Uh the horrible uh Old Parkland technically is not in Highland Park. It's really close by, but his big mansion where he has his private library, I think that's where he's got all the, you know, statues of autocrats and the Nazi napkins and stuff like that. That's in Highland Park. And the horrible quote unquote comedian Alex Stein is from Highland Park, I believe. Uh, that is right. Richard Spencer comes from. By the way, when I learned that Richard Spencer's trust fund came from like a cotton plantation fortune or something like that, I was like, come on. This is it's like a little too, on the nose. Yeah, a little on the nose. He's from an extremely wealthy uh, Dallas family. Is he from Highland Park too? So, no, he lived in the area that's just adjacent to Highland Park where George W. Bush lives, Preston Hollow. So, okay little note about this highland park is its own municipality it's what i what people would call an enclave city it's a city within a city completely surrounded on all sides by dallas and there's some deep history there of like why that is the case and how it has remained that way ever since uh but the first black family to ever own a home in Highland Park wasn't until like the early 2000s. Wow. wow. Uh, Preston Hollow is probably one of the premier, if not the premier wealthy neighborhood in Dallas, within Dallas city limits. It, it sounds a lot like, uh, and I'm, what is that wealthy part of Atlanta that wants to become its own uh, city? Is it Buckhead? Buckhead, yeah. It reminds me of uh, Buckhead. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Yeah. The story of uh, cities since at least, you know, white flight is is often like the story also of these suburbs. Patriot Front, which I want to talk about, 
it comes out of a suburb of Dallas through its founder, uh, the diminutive uh, Thomas Rousseau. He's from Collie what or Sugarland? Grapevine. Grapevine. Alex Jones, I think, is from there. Yeah. I don't know where Alex Jones is from. He <laughs> was he from Rockwall, maybe? Rockwall. Yeah, Rockwall. Rockwall is yeah. also a nut job place, but yeah, uh Rockwall, also a suburb. Colleyville, also a suburb. I grew up in Colleyville, which is next to Grapevine. So yeah, you know, I was you know, probably for a long time and didn't even know it within a very short distance from Rousseau. Last random question. The Woodlands. Uh, What is that? It's a private, it's like privately run. Yeah. So in Texas, we have these things called like special purpose districts or municipal utility districts. Um, And there are these like, weird ass things where the local government basically allows this carve out to be run by a board like a private board so another example of it is Los Colinas um basically Los Colinas is managed by like a private board and yeah, the Lost Cleanest Association is governed by non-compensated volunteer board members. I don't know if that's it. Um, but I digress. Yeah, it 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 is like effect- effectively a little area that has its own like regulations around development um that allow it to do things differently. <laughs> is there like a, a- differences that stand out to you between like sort of maybe the rich people of Houston and the rich of Dallas or or is it pretty much the same I don't I don't know enough about the culture in Houston to say definitively like what is different there but what I can say about Dallas is that uh Dallas like old money has a particular sort of like way that it conducts its social culture uh i think like debutante balls private schools uh you know these really like rarefied spaces right right right, Uh, right. and i think maybe in dallas at least there's a little there's like slightly more diversity in the the reason why these people have become wealthy whereas in houston it's like much more likely that you're going to be an oil guy right um but no i i can't say i know enough to to tell you what uh really right. is different about their cultures because i don't get invited to those places and last geographical question in dallas which has all these suburbs north south east west I, I did see there is like sort of a segregation. I read a story and sort of like the southern suburbs are more African-American or is there maybe I'm wrong. Is there? No, any- you're not wrong. Dallas is a very segregated place. Um, and it is it's very much like a north south divide, uh, which goes back to the original redlining maps that were drawn. Uh-huh. Um in the 1900s early 19 early 20th century so um to this day it is still quite 
a segregated city, both racially and economically. Right. And then the Adam Waffen guys, or a lot of them are from uh, post-Texas, or they're from somewhere, I think, near Houston. So let's talk about Patriot Front. And among those in court today was founder and leader of the Patriot Front, Thomas Rousseau. He's from Texas, and according to the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Anti-Defamation League, he is a known white supremacist. Thomas Rousseau grew up outside of Dallas, Texas, and began showing signs of white nationalist beliefs as a young teenager. In fact, this article in the Texas Observer newspaper says the FBI has been monitoring Rousseau since he was still a student in high school. Can you tell us about who Thomas Rousseau is. Yeah, right. So Thomas Rousseau founded Patriot Front, grew up uh, in the suburbs of Fort Worth in Tarrant County, uh, specifically Grapevine. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, he previously was involved in a different group. Uh, oh, yeah. Vanguard I, America. Uh, yeah. Yep, yep. The who the group, the white polo group at Charlottesville that the guy who killed Heather Heyer uh was part of. Yeah. Yeah. So he actually didn't go to the high school that I thought he would have gone to since he last lived in Grapevine. He went to Coppell High School, but it's a very close by place. Coppell is really close to Grapevine. And so he's he's continuously lived in that suburban area for a while. Um and he first kind of came to national attention um when he attended the unite the right event in charlottesville uh as a member of vanguard america the events of that day precipitated a split in vanguard america um where rousseau and some others broke off and created patriot front and i i, I think some of the disagreement was around you know basically how they should present themselves and rousseau more or less like in the chaos after unite the right um i believe he seized the organization's like discord or something and, and then kind of you know repackaged a lot of the stuff that vanguard america had been pushing um Vanguard America, I think, was much more explicitly fascistic and like neo-Nazi in their aesthetic. Um, whereas Patriot Front is more aesthetically American. Like they they wrap themselves in the flag and in the mythos of great American leaders. Uh but the underlying ideology is effectively the same. Yeah, he is an interesting fi figure because I mean the clowns don't worry me, you know, in this thing. the The ones that worry me are like the ones in the sort of Nazi movement, so the ones that are not idiots. And there's something very troubling about him. He's like very uh, dedicated, um, and he's clever about yeah using the flag but there's like a, a sort of famous anecdote where i i think unicorn riot got like all these leaks from uh patriot front and one is like them making one of their videos and i don't i forget what they say and it's like uh, nation family something and then like they they hit it and then they cut 
And then one of the guys uh, who's sort of like holding one of these American flag things is like, hell yeah, see hell, brothers. <laughs> For national sovereignty and collective liberty. Life, liberty, victory. Life, Life liberty, victory. Damn, That's son, that take. might be a cut. That's yeah. a good take right there. Seek fucking high. Let's fucking go. We're fucking <laughs> saying now that it's over. <laughs> you know, like, so the, the, the mask comes down very quickly when uh, yeah. the camera's off. Yeah. I mean, the mask is barely even there right. if you really pay attention to what they talk about. I mean, anybody who, you know, uses Henry Ford and Robert E. Lee references in their manifesto isn't really being. Uh, they're not really being as coy as they think they are. Well, how do you assess him? Would you agree with what my uh, assessment of Russo? I mean, I I agree that they are one of the more concerning organizations, uh, simply because they appear to have a bit more discipline. Uh, they are organizationally um, more robust than some of these other organizations that. Um, don't seem to have a good handle on messaging between or across chapters. Um, and th- they seem to be the most, I'm not trying to flatter them here, but um, th- they seem to be the most physically fit organization compared to some of these other self-proclaimed members of the master race who look like they couldn't run a mile. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I-, I think those things make them a bit more concerning, However, they still aren't very good at OPSEC or InfoSec. They've been exposed a number of times. They've gotten themselves into a great amount of trouble. And um, there's sort of rigid hierarchical structure uh, with Rousseau at the top, I think, kind of limits their abilities to be dangerous in some ways. It's sort of, you know, on the one hand, they present themselves as having strength but on the other hand if like you know they're not acting autonomously um as like individual cells it makes their activities maybe more predictable or um easier to kind of infiltrate and disrupt can you tell us about this fiasco they had in idaho and like sort of what that's what's their status now yeah so you know some of your listeners may have seen this it happened a while ago a bunch of these guys from Patriot Front piled into a U-Haul and uh, decided that they wanted to go to a Pride event in a park. And they got stopped by the police before they made it there and were arrested effectively for, you know, I don't know exactly what the charges were, but like I believe it was something along the lines to of... riot or something? Yeah, intention to riot. Um and uh, that exposed a lot of their identities and tied up a lot of their members in court. And and since then, they've mobilized a number of times uh, in Texas and in other places and have done flyer drops uh, and things of the like. But, um, you know, I, I think over the past year, they've faced a lot of issues that have hobbled their ability to do much. Um, I'm pulling up an article from, so yeah, they, they marched in Austin in July of 2023. And then uh, in 2022, over a year ago, I wrote this article called the most notorious neo-fascist hate group in Texas can't catch a break. 
So um, I wrote that like as much as 10% of the group is currently facing criminal or civil cases. And, how and that I... was in t- November of 2022. So I actually am not 100% sure where all those cases are today. And how angry does it make you? We, we were seeing this a ton. Every time we were seeing these increasing Nazi banner drops over highways or there was this uh, blood gang Nazi march in Florida. And on Twitter, what you'll see is the blue check right wing accounts below all any any video of these groups. It's just fed, fed, you know, like it's just no evidence needed. They're just fed. And then you ask these people, it's like we know who's in Patriot Front. We got their names. We got the faces. I can tell you about Nathan Bruner who was a PhD in uh, chemical engineering, which is scary, from the Colorado School of Mines uh, in Golden, Colorado, who's a member of the Nazi Patriot Front Group. And these people, how angry does that make you? That's maddening, especially whenever I go through, you know, to such great lengths to identify members of these neo-Nazi groups. But unfortunately, some people refuse to accept that it's true and even in when you present them information of who these people are it it is a way for them to continue to deny that it's an issue let's get into where we began what brought nick fuentes to texas to have a seven-hour meeting at a strategy outfit funded by billionaires for seven hours recently? Well, I think I think the roots of it are probably somewhere in the fact that that organization had hired or it's that organization, Pale Horse Strategies, or some of the groups that it has managed um, had hired people who are big fans of Nick Fuentes, like Chris Russo. There's another... Ella Malding. Yeah, Ella Malding as well. Yeah, so... Um, Ella Malding uh, being the other one. Um, but there's also you know, been an observed pattern of other young far-right activists who have been embraced by members of the Republican Party in Jake, Texas. Jake Lloyd, who was Jake on the Lloyd, Don Huffness campaign. Yeah. Um, there's uh, John Doyle, who has been hanging out with some oh. of these people. Kelly Nider, her brother Jake Nider. Um, all these people kind of operate in the same circles. And uh, so, yeah, it's hard to say exactly how that all started. Although there's one person whose work I would highly recommend you check out on this. Um, if you haven't ever, her name's Amanda Moore. And she has yeah, yeah. written a bit about, um, you know, the trend among young Republican activists in Texas uh, of basically, you know, being based zoomers who like nick fuentes yeah Mm -hmm. yep yep so um nick fuentes famously i don't know if actually famously maybe not a ton of people know about this but there's this video of nick fuentes and laura loomer having drinks and saying cheers to the hostile takeover of the republican party Uh, it it, we we see it i mean there's a lot of people want to pretend this is just a fringe and they are now entering the gop party apparatus their staffers in congress somebody told me that half of the gen z republican staffers in dc 
are like groupers. Oh man, uh, I can't speak to that unfortunately. Okay, okay. But I, I I I wouldn't be shocked if there's a solid percentage of them that are sympathetic to that sort of viewpoint. So do you think that Tim Dunn and Wilkes were embracing Fuentes, or do you think it was just people they're paying that were? Hard to say. Um, what we do know is that they are basically Christian dominionists and hard right Christian dominionists at that. And so in that way, they sort of agree with Nick Fuentes that this should be like a Christian nation and that Christian people should be the ones that are in positions of power exclusively. Um, so it's not a stretch of the imagination that they might end up hiring people who would then hire people that are sympathetic to Nick Fuentes' viewpoint. That outfit, Current Revolt, uh, which you did amazing journalism on exposing the sort of rank anti-Semitism of the the guy that runs it. He's deleted those tweets. Are they they're funded by a, a rich guy too? I don't think we know exactly who funds them, but what we do know is that Tony Ortiz, the guy who started it, is is the uh, what do I want to call this? He he worked with Empower Texans in the past, and he was close with, what is his name? Michael Quinn Sullivan, who has been running Texas Scorecard for a long time. And, you know, they're all funded by Tim Dunn and company. Um, so I can't say for certain I know who funds them, but I wouldn't be surprised if it were someone familiar. And, and Ella Malding, she still works at Pale Horse Strategies? I don't think she does anymore, actually. Okay. Well, that that's good. You uh, have done some recent reporting on the school boards. Before that, just a quick question. Texas has this really extreme anti-abortion law. Yep. It seems like there hasn't been blowback for the GOP, at least yet, uh, in like states with these kinds of laws on a state level. I am I wrong? I don't think we've seen that right. play out quite yet in Texas. I don't think we've had enough statewide elections to bear out whether right. it will have an impact. We also don't have things like ballot measures at the state level. So there's not a mechanism for people to push back like there have been in some other states. Right. There was one uh, sort of ray of hope, at least for me, which was when the Fuentes thing happened. There were some Republicans uh, uh, on a state level that did speak out, right? I mean, yeah. Dade, who's this Dade Phelan guy? So Dade Phelan is the Republican Speaker of the Texas State House. And he's sort of the nemesis of the Tim Dunn's and Greg Abbott's of the world. And to understand why they picked that up and why it became this point of controversy between them and people like Ken Paxton um, is you have to understand that there's been a long simmering civil war in the Texas Republican Party between uh people who I would generously describe as more business-friendly conservatives with a tinge of social conservatism versus the more full-throated, 
culture warrior ultra conservatives that often lead with religion and are increasingly demonstrating that they don't really actually care about um things like you know oh the businesses have the ability to make these choices whenever they run counter to their ideological so that conflict has um most notably been around things like school choice uh which is another euphemism for um school privatization and the Dade Phelans of the world and sort of that camp in the Republican Party have opposed that um in large part because so much of Texas is rural and in rural places there is not a dense enough population to even sustain a public school or a private school so they the public schools play a really key role not only educationally but like as the center of a community and driving you know economics and to weaken them in those areas is maybe not you know a popular opinion among those conservatives and then also there are some conservatives who i think rightfully would see school privatization as like a gift to the rich because the people who are going to benefit the most from this are the people who are already paying to send their kids to private schools which tend to be wealthier people right so that underlying conflict then collided with nick fuentes and you know this meeting with neo-nazi scandal and the people who have been at each other's throats it's like the dividing line is pretty much the same with some maybe some exceptions i i think i forgot to ask what do you think they were doing for seven hours i don't know i don't want to speculate to be honest i I really don't know right 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 and there was just a vote in the tech at the texas gop level on hey can we not associate with holocaust deniers how did that vote go? They shot that down. Uh, and there's a lot of hemming and hawing about what does it mean to tolerate something? What does it mean? You know, what what does what does really MS anti-Semitism mean? Um, which are not questions that they've ever been concerned about when it's things like, you know, banning a drag show performance or talking about, you know, pornography or this, that, or the other. Um, and, you know, you can read a lot of reasons into why they're, uh unsure about that or are concerned about that i mean consider the fact that nick fuentes met with donald trump if that re- if that resolution were passed and they had to disaffiliate with an organization like defend texas liberty because they tolerate anti-semitism or neo-nazi sympathies uh what does that mean for any organization that aligns itself with trump and you know i, I think they viewed it as a trap that they would be walking into as sad as that logic is. I think that's really what it came down to. Right. You've done some really good reporting on what's going on with school boards in Texas. You recently had a scoop, a few, a a bunch of different scoops. Do you want to uh, talk about the, your piece in the Texas observer? Yeah. So, um, the most recent piece in the Texas Observer is the first part of an investigative series where I just dug deep into campaign finance at the school board level, looking at um, who the donors are, uh, what PACs are influencing school boards, um, and who these candidates and PACs are spending money on in terms of their expenditures. And what we found 
is that a large amount of money has poured into uh, a, a large number of packs that have all formed in the last two and a half years. And um, these packs have almost uniformly hired one of three different consulting firms uh, who all have direct ties to the Republican Party of Texas. And time and time again, these PACs have pushed rhetoric and priorities that mirror the movements of the state Republican Party. Um, issues like, you know, CRT or uh, trans kids in sports or, uh, you know, pornography in our libraries, et cetera, et cetera. And the upshot of this is it is highly politicized these school board races, which historically have been pretty sleepy affairs. And in Texas, they are legally nonpartisan. So you're not supposed to run, you know, associated with a, a certain party, but that hasn't prevented these candidates from accepting endorsements from a lot of Republican electeds and from working with consulting firms that, um, you know, make all their money working with Republicans. And this pattern hasn't really been reported on because I think a lot of people underestimate the importance of expenditures when it comes to campaign finance. They often look at contributions. And we also found a number of other things. There's a part two that'll be coming out um, in January where we get a bit into how it's not just these consultants that are making a ton of money off of these school boards, but now there's even instances where a lawyer who operates as the general counsel for a major local Republican Party organization has since been hired as the general counsel for multiple school districts by school board members that were elected with the help of consulting firms that have also worked with the Republican Party that he is the general counsel to. What do they want to do if if they could in the schools that is most concerning? Um, I mean, I think they, there's a lot of things that are concerning, but I think broadly right. speaking, they're trying to push their ideological viewpoints in schools, either through education or through the blocking of content and ideas that they find disfavorable. They you know, want to, I think one of the most concerning things that has really happened is that some of these districts have passed rules and policies that have effectively outed students uh, to their parents without their consent. Right, right, right. I, Which yeah. can be very troubling whenever you're oh. in a state where some of these parents may end up being so intolerant that they'll choose to send those kids to some sort of conversion therapy camp. Right. One, I think, maybe benefit, I wonder if you agree with uh, the horrible things going on with Gaza and Israel after October 7th was, and I wonder if you feel the same. After that, when I think back to all the CRT and the trans sports stuff, you know, and for instance, a, a good fact people should know is in Utah, they, they were going to pass this big trans sports bill. And then it came out, there was one student. It would affect one student, you know, like just, and it, those things do seem so small now uh, when you look back on it. Do you, do you, do you feel that as well? I 
generally think, yes, they are making mountains out of molehills. And that is distracting not only them, but a lot of people from focusing on issues that affect more people. Yeah, I I, I feel like maybe their moment has passed. Like, I, I think people are getting a little tired of it. I, I'm not sure if you agree. Do you, do you sense that? I, I think the, the focus is shifted a bit. I mean, I think that there's still people hammering on this issue and it's getting increasingly ridiculous like claiming that trans people shouldn't get to compete in things like chess or darts because somehow because they're trans that gives them some inherent advantage at these games that there's no evidence there is any sort of gender difference it seems to me like looking like 2016 versus now um it seems like and i think this is sort of the fuentes influence that the far right they're definitely still racist but there's been a shift towards emphasizing anti-semitism more than the racism because they see that as um a sort of a big tent approach yeah i mean it, it's it's the creation of an enemy that they think they can get people riled up with and and i think since october 7th we've seen people like jackson hinkle doing um, anti-Zionism as a cover for just anti-Semitism. And it, it is a strategy. I don't know if it's going to be effective, but it does seem like they're trying to kind of create a wedge or press down on a wedge uh, that is forming in terms of either young people or like Muslim Americans being dissatisfied with the way the Democratic Party has handled the uh, the conflict in Gaza. So, you know, there's there is like a current event that I think they're trying to use as a way to short circuit some politics um, and get people to pay attention to them that previously wouldn't have. Um, but I also see these things as sort of just like a recurring cyclic menu of talking points, like as one as one wanes, another waxes and um they're they're just going to pivot to whatever they think is most effective in the moment um and and i also think it, it is in relation to what they can effectively demonize so the racial element has become less of an emphasis uh or you could perceive it as becoming less of an emphasis i don't know what the numbers actually are very likely because the you know black lives matter movement is not in the news as regularly as it used to be so you know you see this in texas in the education stuff i mean it was first it was crt and then it became trans kids uh at some point you know it became books and none of these have entirely gone away it's just they have kind of some have risen and some have fallen in terms of prominence and talking points i don't think any of it's really gone away it's just a matter of what they think is going to get the most play week to week, I, month I, to month. How much do you think this generational issue is underplayed? I think there is something especially alarming going on there with the Gen Z right. Do you agree or do you think, am, am I wrong? Um, I think they're 
there is a trend among millennials or not millennials. I mean, the youngest generation, the Zoomers in the far right to be attracted to this more extreme stuff, at least among the activist base. That's absolutely the case. But I don't I don't know if, it, if it's generational gap in ideology as much as, as it's probably a, a gap in style or aesthetics. Well, look but, at someone like Paul Gosar. He's gladly adopted some of that stuff at the behest of his staffers. That that's that's true. But if if I look at like Michael Flynn, okay, boomer, he thinks Hitler was bad. At least I think I think he does believe that. The the far right, the Gen Z, I I would I would I fear that if you took the GOP congressional staffers that were Gen Z. And did a secret ballot in D.C. and said, who do you like more, Adolf Hitler or Ronald Reagan? Who who do you think would win? Oh, God, I don't even want to answer that question because um, it's grim. Uh, then again, Ronald Reagan, you know, was was cozy with Pinochet and. Yeah, he was bad. South, he was, a- yeah. South African leaders. So. Uh, it's all a spectrum, and right. it's just a matter of right. what people feel emboldened or ashamed by. Um, and I think we're seeing a, a young group of people who feel really emboldened for reasons that are complex, but doesn't mean that there aren't members of the older generation uh, who share sympathies. It's just that perhaps they have lived longer and they understand that messaging and aesthetics are important and they're they're not so flippant with their efforts because some of these young people, they just don't understand that this stuff can stick with them over time. Yeah, and I also don't think it's an accident that like we're seeing the rise of this sort of like Hitler worship and fascism, neo-Nazism, as the Holocaust survivors, as the World War II generation dies off, you know, I mean, because the memory of the destruction caused by these ideologies, it's just an abstraction. So final thoughts on, you know, we're looking at, I really think Trump can win, which is really scary. There were, there was at least one Nazi in in, in the West Wing in his first administration, uh, Garrett Ziegler, uh, who was assistant to Peter Navarro, spoke at the, uh, Nick Fuentes' uh, pro-Hitler conference. And if he gets back in, I think there's going to be more. How concerned are you about that? And how bad do you think the GOP is going to get? How what, what are you looking at? What are you worried? You know, uh, I, I'm... I'm more worried about um, mainstream religious elements overlapping with conspiratorial and fascistic movements. You know, CPAC, they're going to do what they do. They're going to keep trying to kick Fuentes out and try and keep distance from them, but simultaneously nodding and winking and, you know, allowing some of those people to come as long as they don't make a big scene out of it. You know, I, I am frankly a bit more concerned around like, you know, like Catholic organizations and big mega churches beginning to adopt political ideas that are, I don't want to say dangerous, but beyond the pale. So, you know, a lot of that influences what the GOP does because the churches 
in this country, like the big ones, um, are pretty good at mobilizing their people to vote. And policy is really determined in the primaries. And uh, those are the types of people that vote in primaries. And, you know, Trump was so incompetent, you know, he couldn't even build his wall. If he gets back in, how fearful should we be? Uh, I don't want to worry too much about that right now because he's right. not there. Right. Um, right. People should remain focused on it not being an inevitability. Yeah. But the people that he has announced that he would like to appoint should tell you everything about what we are likely to deal with if we see that happen if we see him win the election. Steven, uh, please plug uh, your writing, any ways that people can support you and say whatever you like, closing comments. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Uh, nice conversation. And I appreciate your attention to these issues. You can uh, follow me on Twitter or Blue Sky. Um, it's where I post the most. I also have an Instagram, but don't really post much there. Um, and my handle is Steve Anzetti, S-T-E-V-A-N-Z-E-T-T-I, in all of those places. You can read my writing in a lot of different places, uh, but I, I have a consolidated portfolio page that you could you know, flip through it. It's uh, on Linktree, which I have on my bio on Twitter. Um, so you can find it there. And I also publish a literary magazine called Protean Magazine. Um We've been putting out a lot of stuff about, you know, we've been we've been putting a lot of stuff about the conflict in Gaza out recently over the past two months. We had a partnership established with the Institute for Palestinian Studies, and we've been posting translated letters from people who have been dealing with, um, you know, the the bombardments and the occupation. We've also been posting poetry and some other essays and a great review of a book on the business of literature, which I found to be really fascinating. Um, so what's that called? Go check that, that out. What's that book called? It's called Big Fiction. Um, the subtitle is How Conglomeration Changed the Publishing Industry and oh, wow. American Literature. Well, that sounds uh, great. Yeah, the review's excellent. I'm sure the book is also really excellent. Can't say I've read it all. Um, uh, but we publish a lot of really interesting stuff there. We're a nonprofit. Um you can, you know, buy a magazine on our website, or you can support us on Patreon. I also have a Patreon personally, so if you appreciate my work and you want to chip me a few bucks a month, you can do that um, that way. And uh, otherwise, I've got a story coming up in Texas Monthly. It's probably going to be out by the time anybody's listening to this. So go check out my social media um, if you want to see that when it comes out. Uh, and like I said, you know, generally speaking, the, I have a link tree. Um, that's probably the best place to find information about what I do. It's l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e backslash Steve Anzetti, S-T-E-V-A-N-Z-E-T-T-I. There's a contact place there for if you ever want to give me tips, all my social media, links to the magazine, and ways to support me and the magazine. So, um, yeah, I think that, that pretty much covers yeah. it. Thanks, Daniel. I appreciate yeah. it.